And so Web3 is sort of the the coalition of a lot of different technologies that, that ultimately are trying to create what they call a read-write-own internet. I honestly think of it as this cross between radical capitalism and radical communism. Authority is always an issue in human life. Human being generally, but human societies in particular, need authority. If you have knowledge, then you have authority. Hey, we don't need a centralized institution in the middle mediating our interactions with one another. We actually can do that on our own. The more fractured and fragmented a society is, the more everybody gravitates towards political power. And then we have these structures that are called DAOs, which are decentralized autonomous organizations. Decentralized autonomous organizations, that's another word for a Baptist church. Welcome to the Life of the Mind podcast by the Oak Guild Institute. I'm Kate Whitehead, and soon our very own Jake Chaco will properly introduce his guests who are both very personal to him. Joining Jake is a millennial futurist who happens to be his daughter, Becca Carroll, and his friend, John Orpert, a philosopher-psychologist-pastor from the baby boomer generation. In this two-part series, Jake, Becca, and John discuss the philosophical and societal implications of some of the latest emerging technologies, including Web3, artificial intelligence, and the metaverse. So what happens when new world tech meets old world wisdom? I'll give you a hint. Instead of opposition or debate or even confusion over technical definitions, ideas converge and connect and multiply in surprising and impressive ways. In the first of this two-part series, we begin with Web3. Our futurist friend, Becca, will define and explain Web3 in a minute, so no worries if you are a novice to the term. However, a basic premise is that Web3 is empowering the users and builders and issuing the need for authority and organizations and institutions like major tech and social media companies. Think Google and Meta. While we don't technically get into blockchain or NFTs in either episode, that is one potential method of taking back control. So before we get to the conversation on Web3, Let's start from the beginning. Humans have organized themselves into groups and hierarchies since the beginning of time. In the 4th century BCE, the Sumerians are believed to be the first to not only develop a government with city-states, but also create the oldest known law code. They were located in what is now modern-day Iraq. Leaders quote-unquote taxed their people by mandating intermittent free labor to support agricultural and irrigation public service projects that benefited the state. Many nations and empires rose and fell over the 24 centuries since then until now. In more recent history, the Cold War of the 20th century divided the world into two political and more relevant economic systems, socialism and capitalism. To oversimplify, the two ideologies advocated for whether people were better served when economies were centralized and planned or when they were decentralized and market-driven. Outside of economic and political systems were other organized people groups, religious bodies providing moral and spiritual guidance, artists and guilds standardizing supporting level of quality and compensation for workers, and the modern-day corporation are just three examples. So why is it that humans have created organized structures, power hierarchies, and economic systems? Is it our need to have dominion and responsibility, like a power play? Is it our need to create order out of chaos? or maybe it's a little of both. 
With many individual conflicting incentives, shared knowledge and values, and organizational structures were critical to the continuation and thriving of the human species and for it to become where it is today. But the question still remains, what is the right structure of organizing people and information, and who should have that authority or power over such structures? Is what we learned in government and economics relevant for organizing a global information and communications network like the internet? Is it like the prisoner's dilemma, where what benefits an individual may not benefit the whole of society? Well, to explore this further, here's Jake to properly introduce his guests as we learn about Web3 and explore philosophical ideas around power and authority. Hello, I'm Jake Chaco, and welcome to another Life of the Mind podcast from the Oak Guild Institute. At the Oak Guild Institute, we are on a relentless search for truth via dialogue, contested if needed, but always loving. Today, I'm excited about our guests, Becca Carroll and John Ortberg, and I'm equally excited about our topic. Let's start with the latter. Emerging technologies are barreling down upon us. Web3, artificial intelligence, the metaverse, are proxies for these emerging technologies. The question is, what are the philosophical, moral, and theological implications of these emerging technologies? We hear often from futurists, and usually separately we hear from philosophers and ethicists, but rarely in conversation and dialogue. Today, we get to have that conversation. This particular episode was was prompted by a series of podcasts earlier this year from Carrie Newhoff, who is known to our guest John Ortberg and myself. Carrie, whose very large audience includes business and church leaders, in his series of podcasts on emerging technologies, asked the question, where are the philosophical, moral, and theological voices weighing in? We are pleased to be one response to Carrie's question as we bring together a futurist and a philosopher. I said my guests are very special. Let's start with the futurists. Becca Chaco Carroll is my oldest daughter. So Becca, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and why your dad, who is always proud of you regardless, considers you a futurist. Totally, I'm happy to. So uh, my name is Becca Carroll. So I work for a company called IDEO, which is a product design firm. And I joined about seven years ago. And the whole time uh, I was working in a lot of our emerging technology work, kind of trying to imagine what do these future technologies ultimately mean for humans? How do they change the way that we interact with the world around us? How do they change the way we interact with one another? And so from the beginning of my time at IDEO, I had been working on blockchain, Bitcoin, all these things that were sort of like before we started calling all of these movements Web3. And then I spent a little time working on augmented reality and virtual reality or AI. And the whole time it was about how do we build or design prototypes? How do we create things that help us understand how these new technologies ultimately are going to affect humans? And so that was with sort of a product design lens. And then of late, I've been working really closely on what is Web3 going to do to financial inclusion across the globe? Like, do we have different ways that we can re-architect our financial system in a way that is more inclusive, enabled by technology, but ultimately that creates human good? And so... That's a little bit about me. I keep learning from you, um, Becca. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to this. Um, Let's move on to John Carl Ortberg. 
And John, we've been working together, or we worked together starting 10 years ago in various capacities at a church. Uh, and we've gotten to be friends. And when people ask me about you, I say two things. You're a good man and you're a funny man. So why are you here to weigh in philosophically and theologically? If you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do. Uh, I've been a pastor for a long time, very interested in personhood. And so I think that's probably an intersection point. Uh, I got a, a master's degree in divinity, which is kind of the standard pastoral degree, and then also a degree in clinical psychology, although I never practiced as a psychologist. Uh, but those questions about what does it mean to be a person? Where do faith and life change intersect? Why is change so difficult? How does it happen? Uh all um, seem really, really interesting and really important to me. And um, in the course of pursuing those questions over 30 years ago now, I came across the writings of a man who taught philosophy at USC, Dallas Willard. And he thought and wrote about God, faith, personhood, how life works, change, the nature of the mind, the nature of the will, in ways that were hugely important for lots and lots of folks, I would be one of them. And I think all of those questions are um, very connected to conversations about uh, the internet, online technology, artificial intelligence, what is personhood, how is technology impacting human flourishing? So I uh, feel very inadequate to this conversation, but uh, have been looking forward to it a lot, and I'm really glad to be a part of it. Um, super, thank you. And I, I think we're all inadequate in some sense, but it should be collectively, it should be a very good conversation. So thank you both again. Just to set up how we'll go about this, and I picked up three proxy technologies that are emerging, Web 3.0, uh, artificial intelligence, and the metaverse. The way I'd suggest we do it is we'll start off with the technology itself and we'll unpack what it is just to set context for our listeners then I will provide a provocative philosophical statement. And then, John, you can um, weigh in and dismiss it or provide an alternate point of view. If, if, if that works, uh, let's dive into it. Okay? Great. Let's do it. Okay. Um, web 3.0. Uh, we've had the Web 1.0. We're supposedly living in Web 2.0. And here comes the train that is Web 3.0. So Becca, you tell us what is Web 3.0? Why should it happen? And why is it happening? When will it happen? Wow, no pressure. Easy question to start with. Um, but I think to maybe set context for this a little bit, it's helpful to sort of understand that when people talk about Web3, they are talking about three distinct eras of the internet. If we think of the internet as this extraordinary technology that actually like fundamentally changed the way humans interacted with one another. It started with what a lot of people call the read web. Um, so this is a web that the two of you are actually probably more familiar with or were more interacting with than I was. But this is something that went from, you know, the early 90s or the, the late 80s to 2000. And people talk about it as a read only web because the way it was structured was that people would put content out there other people would consume it. There wasn't a ton of interaction outside of sort of email structures. So it was sort of like, there are many, many things being built and they are meant to be looked at, consumed, 
and then people sort of go away and, and kind of continue their own lives. So think of like the GeoCities website you might have launched in 1995 or things like that. We had been around, you know, the dot-com boom and then a little bit after this emergence into Web 2, which a lot of people call the social web, but effectively is trying to pull together a whole bunch of different trends, like the movement of singular platforms that control a lot of our, in, our interaction with the internet. But ultimately, I think of it as it was the moment that the internet moved from this read-only experience to a read-write experience, right? It's a moment in which you're not just expected to go on the internet and consume content, the majority of people, but you're actually interacting with that content. You are, if you have a Facebook account, you are a content creator. You're putting things onto the Facebook account. Other people are interacting with that with you. It becomes this incredible social vehicle for coordination, but it is still ultimately sort of mediated by these big platforms that are controlling how you interact, where you interact, what's a, what's allowed to be interacted on. And so you can kind of think of that as like the Facebook and the Google and the Amazon. And, you know, there are all these statistics about a huge percentage of the world's internet traffic kind of flows through these very few organizations. And so Web3 is sort of the, the coalition of a lot of different technologies, like you're saying, uh, that ultimately are trying to create what they call a read-write-own internet. So it's trying to take technologies like blockchain, which are fundamentally about, can we create new ways of economic coordination? It's trying to take technologies like, you know, uh, decentralized platforms or, or democratized voting. It's trying to take new organizational structures like uh, autonomous organizations and, cre and creating sort of machines who are participating actively in online communities and trying to say, like, how do we bring all these things together? and ultimately create an internet in which everyone can take place and the benefits that are being created aren't sort of extracted by three or four individual organizations, but are extracted by the people who are actually creating the content of value. So it's really a shift from, do we go to an internet that's mediated by a few organizations to an internet that is sort of built and controlled by the people? And if it sounds idealistic in many ways, like I think it is incredibly idealistic, uh, I think it remains to be seen whether or not these like big aspirations that many in the community are building towards actually are created. But I, I think of it a lot as actually really analogous to the founding of, you know, America, the founding of democracy, where you're saying like, hey, we have these really big ideas. We don't know if they're going to work because we're using this structure that we don't have a lot of good examples in the in history of having worked really well or having stuck around for a long time, much as the way like, you know, the founding fathers were exploring in 1776, hey, we've got something in, you know, Gresham and Roman times that we're building off of. But it, it has that similar sort of sense and bent of optimism of, hey, we can figure this out, we can make this work, because we know the current structure we have today isn't working for so many people, what can we design that's better? So hopefully I didn't go too technical there. I'm happy to go more into the technologies of how that all works. But I think we're here to more discuss the philosophy of what that means for people. Thank, thank you, Becca. That was um, really good. John, you have any questions? Um, I have a couple, but why don't you, uh, any clarification questions or comments on what Becca just said? Well, I'm, still, I'm still trying to absorb and digest. Thanks. Okay, Becca, I have a quick question before we shift to the philosophical uh, aspect. Arguably, because um, I was there uh, at the emergence of Web 1.0, and it was the open internet and it was open speech and everybody could, could read anything. And when you could 
publish, anybody could write anything, etc. So apparently that didn't actually happen. That vision was not realized, right? So is this an, another attempt at that or or was your, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I do think in a lot of ways, it's another attempt at that or maybe a, a nostalgic view of how do we recapture that, that open Wild West feeling. But I think it's slightly different because one of the challenges, one of the reasons we sort of emerged into Web2 was that coordination between many different groups of people or different individuals was really hard to do effectively. Uh, so the reason that we sort of like center centralized into these singular institutions mediating our interaction with the, with the internet was that those institutions could actually coordinate and create a better experience than we were having in web one. Like you interacting with Facebook or Friendster or MySpace was actually better than you creating a GeoCities page that you had to go sell to all your friends and be like, hey, go check out my GeoCities page. And so we we were like, oh, wow, there's a better way of coordinating. And that's mediated by an organization that is just better at creating the tools, launching the tools, doing that in a way that's useful to people. And it just it makes the platform easier to use. I think the fundamental difference now is that Web3 uses some of these economic coordination tools like blockchain, like distributed consensus to say, hey, we don't need a centralized institution in the middle mediating our interactions with one another. We actually can do that on our own. And we can do that, we can sort of reap the benefits of a collective while still main, being able to maintain individual control or, indiv or individual participation. And so what that means is you have this sort of hybrid mode where you've sort of shifted from a web one that was wholly based on, well, what can you as an individual do to a web two that was, okay, forget individuals. We're going to put all of our sort of faith and, and kind of like trust in institutions. Web three that's aspirationally trying to say, well, how do we have the best of both worlds? How do we have individuals that can effectively participate, that can be rewarded for their participation? How do we have technologies that are constantly evolving according to the wishes of a community? But how do we do that and build that together as a network versus building that as, as pure individuals? And so I think that's the big shift or difference. And it, it really remains to be seen if that's going to be as effective or as useful to people as Web2 was. So Becca, I uh, get the sense of um, cryptocurrency, uh, Bitcoin, and how that can change from state-based currency and how that could shift things. How would we move from having communication that's organized or mediated by an Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or some organization that is reaping money from it to uh, a way that would organize communication, but with nobody making a profit on it? What, what would that migration look like? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think actually it's less of a structure of nobody making a profit on it and more of a structure of how do we create a mechanism by which the people who are contributing the most to that community, whether they're because they are the content creators that are driving the most interest in the community, whether that's because they are the ones who are building the sort of UX or the architecture that underpins it, how are they the ones that are reaping the rewards versus the sort of uh, like unbalance that we have now? And the reason that that is possible is because we have this economic shift within, let me rephrase that. We have this capability with blockchains to sort of enable people to economically be incentivized to participate in a network. Like fundamentally, that's what it is. It's like when you are participating or using a token and being rewarded with a token for doing some sort of pro-network behavior, 
you're economically incentivized to participate in that network. In combination with that, we have these structures like smart contracts that sort of mediate the ways that you know, certain actions always lead to other actions, certain actions can sort of automatically be happening in the background without human control, that sort of take away a lot of the functions that maybe a corporation like an Instagram was doing and say, how do we just put those out there and say, this is how this protocol functions, no one person owns it, it's just code, it just sits on a computer somewhere. And then we have these structures that are called DAOs, which are decentralized autonomous organizations, which are, you can sort of think of them as the organization of the future. They are these structures where you have highly disparate communities of people, people kind of all over the globe who can pop in and say, hey, this is an interesting community. I want to participate. And I might want to participate by writing code for the community. I might want to participate by doing something on the protocol that's valuable. So in the Instagram analog, it's like, you know, making a post and getting a bunch of followers to come along with the community on uh, alongside me. And in doing those sort of pro-social or pro-protocol behaviors, you're often rewarded with tokens. So you're economically incentivized to sort of build your community, bring more people into your community. And you then have the sort of structure of the UX of Instagram or the technology of Instagram that's happening via smart contract in the background. So you don't have a individual organization that's controlling it. It's controlled by the network that's interacting with the protocol. And that can actually change over time. So you can kind of think of this as I think of it as shareholder voting on steroids, where like theoretically, we're all, when we own stock, where we own part of Meta, we own part of Google, we could express our point of view, but we're so sort of meaningless in the big network of shareholders that own Google that like, it doesn't really matter if I'm like, hey, I think you should do it this way. The idea with Web3 is to say, yes, the community owns it and the community not only owns it, but has really effective ways of participating in its governance. So really effective ways of saying, hey, as a community, you know, we think Meta has gone too far in its control over speech. And we actually want them to pull back. And instead of the sort of blunt instruments we have of, you know, a quarterly stockholder meeting and coming up to a microphone and saying, here's what I think you should do. You actually can sort of put that out there to the network. You can call a vote of a particular move of a protocol or community and it can it can actually shift. The community can move to a different different choice. So I would think of it as not necessarily organizations disappear, but they're formed in different ways and they have just much more fluid boundaries of who can enter and be a part of the proto-corporation, who can leave it, and then how decisions are made. Wow, John, you have a, I'm, I'm overwhelmed, but uh, you got that, John? Yeah, it's a, uh, a radical shift and uh, trying to understand um, how it would work and why it would work and even just searching for the analogies, kind of like radical capitalism, but with a trust-busting structural form that makes that the the giant Facebook meta Google and so uh, kind of unable to wield the type of power that they're wielding currently. Yeah, and it's I honestly think of it as this cross between radical capitalism and radical communism, right? Where it's like a lot of the ideals are actually like in many ways like socialist communist ideals, where it's like, hey, we can all come together, we can all benefit from the collective work of the people who are participating. That's amazing. But then you're all you're always incentivized in many ways. And this is I don't think necessarily a good thing, but you're always incentivized by individual wealth creation. Right. If you participate in the protocol in the most effective way, you are the one who's going to reap the reward. So you are looking at everything with this sort of economic lens of, okay, well, what am I going to derive from that? And how is it economically going to benefit me? Which I think is is super interesting. I, I mean, you guys will find this. I'm super curious to be to figure out, like, who's going to launch the first 
DAO-based church, where you have a collective of people, you might have some percentage of donations, you have the rules of how the church operates built into the protocol, and you then are sort of constantly changing how people interact with that church, and it's entirely, it, it would have to happen entirely digitally in this current form and technology we have, but it would be really interesting to, to see, like, does that change the way people interact with their religion? Does that change when they, like, when they're not sort of going through a singular organizing body, but going through a body that has always had fluid boundaries. I think the church has always had fluid boundaries, but it's always been fluid boundaries and participants, less so in the organization. When it's in the organization itself, does that actually change the way people understand religion? The Life of the Mind podcast is from the Oak Guild Institute. At OGI, We seek truth from unique experiences and diverse perspectives. Listening and learning may lead to contested dialogue. We believe contested dialogue can still be loving and compassionate between those with opposing viewpoints. Oak Guild Institute is a fledgling organization with a podcast and salon-style conversations, bringing people together in person and online. Please visit oakguild.org, O-A-K-G-U-I-L-D, .org to learn more and get involved. So, Becca, let me um, let me tee up the uh, philosophical question uh, as best as I can try and interpret what you were saying. Uh, at the core of it, I mean, you used words like big platform institution, democratized voting, DAOs, and so on. It seems to me. So here's the <coughs> excuse me the thesis statement: human beings generally, but human societies in particular need authority to be stable at the very least, and they need good authority to flourish. So absent an authority, an authority will emerge, whether that, whether that authority emerges from economic systems, it, it emerges from government systems, uh, it, it emerges from religious systems, but some authority will emerge. I mean, nature abhors a vacuum. So, so this this dream will it you know will it happen or will it just be a, a different kind of authority and different kind of power structure? It almost goes back to the statement: if God doesn't exist, humans would need to invent God. So, John, um, you and I have absorbed what Becca is saying with my tea up. W- what are your thoughts on this? You know, I, I think on the technology side of it, I know so little that I don't think I would be able to offer any kind of predictions that would be worth anything at all. Authority is always an issue in human life. And um, in our day, I think it tends to be contested a lot around knowledge. And so questions of uh, who actually knows something are hotly debated because of that. You know, what what constitutes knowledge and what does not? Are science and math the only domains of knowledge? Is there such a thing as moral knowledge? Is there such a thing as spiritual knowledge? Those areas are hotly contested because if you have knowledge, then you have authority. A doctor is able to perform brain surgery. Somebody else isn't. I mean, the same thing's true with a car mechanic. We will will, uh, inevitably give authority to people who are recognized to have knowledge. So then that question of what constitutes knowledge and who has it uh, is really central. 
I take it that, you know, in Western culture, academic institutions are um, taken to be very, very important centers of knowledge. And therefore, uh, they have a lot of authority. And um, for the most part, in Western culture, an appeal to research uh, has authority attached to it because it's assumed that research leads to knowledge. So I don't think that will go away. And um, decentralized autonomous organizations, actually, it was kind of funny. It strikes me. That's another word for a Baptist church. Um, in church <laughs> world, uh, you know, you have a you have a wide spectrum of centralized versus decentralized authority. Catholic Church, the Pope, the Orthodox Church, Patriarch, uh, to uh, Lutheran or uh, Anglican polity, where you have a bishop. Presbyterian is somewhat less centralized. Baptist tends to be uh, the most kind of radically autonomous. Each local organization, each local church is actually a decentralized autonomous organization. So um, there are different structural ways to set up organizations uh, and economies and political structures. And those tend to come and go. Uh, but the presence of authority in human life and part of what's interesting about the political domain is it's the one domain that has coercive authority available to it. That's part of why so sociologist James Hunter, who says the more fractured and fragmented a society is, the more everybody gravitates towards political power as opposed to uh, education, religion, art, philanthropy, because politics is the only sphere in which you have access to coercive power. So uh, the reality of coercive power and the fact that knowledge and what constitutes knowledge is hotly contested because knowledge always confers, you know, there's a relationship between the word author and authority. So uh, who wrote it? Who understands the narrative? Um, that's the one who has authority. And is there an author, in fact? Is there authority built into uh, the structure of existence? Those dynamics, it seems, will continue to be present. And um, I'm not quite sure how Web 3.0 will relate to those ultimate issues of authority and knowledge in life, except that I'm quite sure that they will still be contested. And I think that's it's such a fascinating point. And just to, like, I love that that framing because I think there are two things when I think about this question of authority, like it sort of serves two functions when you think about authority mediating humans interaction with their community. So one is setting the rules of it, or one is like rules of engagement, right? Like creating ways that we interact with one another that aren't total anarchy or chaos that aren't, you know, me wandering into a room and just shouting at everybody and wandering away, but actually like we're setting rules of engagement for how we interact with one another. And the second one is sort of who is that authority? Like who sets those rules? And so, you know, is that is that God? Is that a centralized tech platform? Is that government? Whatever, who is the one who's setting those rules? And I think both of those are sort of pushed on by the existence of Web3. The rules of engagement themselves, there's this techno-libertarian philosophy behind them, not saying I agree with it, which is like those are encoded into the protocol. The way we interact, it's literally in, encoded into the environment that we're interacting in. And then this question of who's setting the rules, the idea of moving to the community, I think, is ultimately a push to say, well, what does it look like for every individual to be a part of setting those rules? And that puts a lot of 
both power and risk on the individual themselves to say like, well, you are as much an authority for how this community functions as the person sitting next to you. That is, in some ways it sounds really great, but then you think, well, that's a lot of responsibility. Like, do I want to have authority in every sphere of my life that I'm interacting with? Probably not. Like, there's a, a mental weight that's taken off my head and taken off of human's head for why we have leaders, why we have sort of authority figures at all, which is which says like, hey, I don't want to be the one that, to your point, builds up all the knowledge myself. I want to be able to confer my trust in something else and kind of use that as a shortcut for making the right decisions. And so I think this is actually quite quite challenging, but also really interesting. There's a um, book, you guys might be familiar with it. I think it came out in the 60s called The Organization Man that was sort of about this philosophy of, okay, we're moving into an industrial age and people are going beyond the Dunbar number of 150. There are these organizations that are much, much larger that are able to effectively coordinate. And that's because people sort of interact with the organization or subsume themselves to the organization in a different way than they had before. And I think it is really interesting to imagine like, okay, now we're in this Web3 world what is the web three man or the web three human, I should say. Um, and is that a person who has, is not subsuming themselves into the organization, but constantly viewing themselves as sort of an active participant in the authority of that organization? Or are we just subsuming ourselves to a different authority? So not to get too into the technology, but are we like- A question on that front, uh, you know, going back now many centuries, at least to the middle ages, in many professions, there would be guilds and those are places where people became experts in a body of knowledge. The professions were people who had something to profess. They would actually profess a body of knowledge. And um, it was recognized that there would be authority within the guilds. So right now, I can't just say, I want to do brain surgery. And anybody who wants to come to me could do it. I would actually be liable if I started doing brain surgery because I'm not part of the guild. I have not been certified by it. Is the idea of Web3, all that will go away? And those structures will no longer exist and will all be democratized. So anybody who wants to say, I know enough to do brain surgery could say it. And anybody who wants to trust them and thinks they could, could go to them. What would be the role of kind of current structures of guilds and authority that are not strictly democratized right now in that arrangement? Yeah, I, well, one, I, I sure hope not. Like, I sure hope we don't move to a world in which I can just like someone on the street who's a great salesperson can convince me that they're great at brain surgery. I think the actual vision for it is less that those organizing structures go away so much as they are reformed um, and basically reformed to be both more porous and more living. Like the idea being, I. I want there to be some mechanism by which we as a community decide this person is qualified to be a doctor, but I don't want that to be structured in such a way where it's like we write the rules one time and we never revisit them again because the cost of change is really high, even when those rules aren't serving us anymore. And so I think the aspiration, again, not saying it's where we're definitely going to go, but I think the aspiration when I talk to people in the community is we want to have those functions by which we're assessing quality, by which we're sort of like participating in a way that makes sense for humans and is ultimately good for humans. But what we don't want is to make those things basically read only. Like we set a guild, we set the terms of membership for the guild. It doesn't matter that it's 200 years later and those terms don't make sense. It's too hard to change them at this point. It's trying to say, well, how do we make those things living? So if we as a community decide those terms are no longer serving us, we can change it. Wow. Thank you to Becca Carroll, John Orkberg, 
and OGI's very own Jake Chaco for a fascinating conversation. I love how a seemingly simple topic about what's new with the internet can evolve into such deep analysis of human society, philosophy, politics, and religion. Web3 is a process of decentralizing the internet and giving power back to the builders and users. But who sets the rules and how? I never thought of the term author as being a root of authority, but it makes sense. Who wrote and understands and is closest to the narrative, the author, and who creates authority? As Jake noted, some form of authority is needed to flourish in our social, political, and religious systems, as with the internet. And John explained, those with knowledge often have authority, but in a fractured society, there is a greater risk of authority becoming a coercive power. So what will Web3 look like? Will major tech companies and some governments continue to dominate? Or can it be as Becca's ideal of taking the best from capitalism and socialism with democratization and power back to the people? If a more decentralized model unfolds, will that just create a vacuum for new and different power structures and institutions to converge? And if that happens, what do we hope for? For them to be democratic and non-coercive? How do we ensure that happens? I hope you continue the dialogue with friends and family as you wrestled with the future of the internet and new technology that connects and maybe controls the world. In the next episode, Jake, Becca, and John will continue discussing the emerging technologies of AI and the metaverse. Thank you for joining the Oak Guild Institute's Life of the Mind podcast. We encourage you, the listener, to share this episode with another and start a dialogue where our curiosity is explored through unique experiences and diverse perspectives. It's always okay to respectfully and lovingly disagree with ideas and interpretations of events you listen to here or get from other sources. To find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit oakguild.org to learn more about our other efforts to deepen and broaden the conversation.